Hi, this is the Tempter Podcast, where we discuss embedded Linux, IoT development, and technology in general. Your hosts today are Kim Raj and Cliff Brake. So, Happy New Year, everyone. Happy New Year, everyone. Yeah, had a great 2023 and looking forward to 2024. So, we thought to start the new year off, we would, we would do an episode um, on predictions, trends, and opportunities for 2024. And maybe just talk about some of the things we see happening, trends, some of the things, the the, the direction things are going, and then some of the opportunities that will come as a result of that. We broke this down in sections. So, um, you know, the first one is hardware. What are your thoughts on hardware, Kim? Yeah, so I think um, as the trend continues, specifically in this space that we play in, you know, the processors are getting more and more complex with time, uh, year by year. Um, and um, as a result, you know, they are able to run a lot more complex software. And as a result, the complexity is growing up. And I think this will continue um, and, in fact, even accelerate um, as we move into, you know, 2024 and beyond. Um, and I think um, the, in order for us to support, I think the real question would be, you know, how do you sustain uh, this kind of uh, development model? And, yeah, it's not making our job any easier for sure as we deal with, you know, right. processors that have multiple cores in them, different MCUs doing boot and, you know, just trust and security and and mm-hmm. all that it's 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 really getting quite complex just to start one of these things up yeah so i think that you know uh, it'll become more and more um, evident that some open platforms or open communities um you know would be more and more important because you know no one entity can take care of all the complexity themselves um, you know it has to be very large uh, entity, or you know, you will basically collaborate, leverage um, each other's work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I completely agree. It's it's a definitely a trend, and one of the one of the most complex systems we're working with now is the NVIDIA Jetson mm-hmm. Orin, a very complex uh, system on module, mm-hmm. and you know they've done the right thing. They've set up a discourse community. They, they support people on it, but even more than that, you have other experts from the industry that are participating and and helping people out who have questions. So it's, yeah, people are realizing that that no one company has the bandwidth to, to deal with all the issues. Um, yeah, so I think, um, you know, this is uh, something um, on, um, you know, various CPU architectures, I would think that phase five is on the rise. And um, you can see like in 2023, in you know, a lot of uh, activity around that, there were some organized efforts that are now coming out, you know, so uh, there's a, um, from Linux Foundation and from, um, you know, the RISC-5 Foundation, and you would find more of this going into future where more and more organizations will um, 
come around and, and collaborate um, on RISC V related activities, uh, not only in hardware, but also in software and other uh, standardization pieces that are required. And um, uh, I think that before, you know, we've, we've seen a lot of um, activity around SPCs based on RISC V that came around in 2023. Um, which is great to see a lot of work into the ecosystem, but I think that real opportunity for uh, uh, RISC-V would start from, or is already there to a certain extent, is in the MCUs. So um, RISC-V has a 32-bit port and a 64-bit port. Um, you would already be seeing some of the 32-bit RISC-V-based MCUs out there, um, but I think that I wouldn't be surprised if you know you will start seeing 64-bit MCUs uh, sooner. Yeah, yeah. And by MCUs, we mean microcontrollers. These are smaller processors in the embedded space that run an RTOS. And yeah, they're mu they're much simpler parts than than like a Linux processor. So it mm -hmm. seems like a more logical place for RISC-V to to start and take hold. Mm -hmm. They're also more cost sensitive. Yeah. So all these things work together that it seems like, and also the power, you know, you've, you've mentioned before, you've noticed the risk five instruction yeah. set takes less power. So many of these MCR applications are very power sensitive. Yeah. And I think once you reduce the circuit size uh, on your die, you know, generally you save a lot of power. Mm -hmm. And I think, given the scalability and modularity that I think it offers. Um, because in the microcontroller world, you know, you want to do uh, specific computing. You really don't want to do general computing. So you might want to, you know, add delete stuff. And I think Chris 5 is also good for that. Um, and obviously, you know, you own uh, the control of what you're putting out there. So you're, um, it gives you a much better uh, setup to work with. Yes, right. So related to the microcontrollers or the MCU, we're, we're seeing uh, seeing Zephyr really take off, mm -hmm. and it's it's moving at a rate that that it it's similar to the Linux kernel. It's it's just moving fast. The number of contributions is is huge, and it seems like it, it's kind of become the de facto RTOS and companies that don't embrace it will be struggling to keep up, it seems. Yeah, I think, um, you know, as we've seen that uh, Linux, you know, was an operating system uh, when it started off an open source operating system was built around it. Um, and, you know, RISC-V is to hardware in the same way I feel like Zephyr is to the RTOSes in the same way. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of RTOSes out there, um, some open, some not open. Um, but I think um, the way Zephyr has um, come along, I think you know it stands a very good chance of being ported across as a uh, predominant OS or RTOS, you know, in the microcontroller world. And I think some of the um, design decisions are key in there. You know, the lot of lessons, portability lessons from Linux is, are in there. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and I think the way they have embraced their tooling, uh, they have really uh, catered to the microcontroller developer market uh, with this uh, powerful uh, design decisions along yeah. with. Yeah. With. And they've also really done a good job with testing. Mm -hmm. You open a PR for Zephyr and yeah, and, and a bunch of different tests run. So they have very extensive testing and with a, with a project the size of Zephyr, the only way to move fast is to have good testing. So it seems yeah. like they've really figured that out. I haven't seen anything else like it mm -hmm. anywhere in, else in the microcontroller industry. Yeah, and I think, uh, you know, the, the HAL concept is also really nice because um, if you look at, especially in the microcontroller world, you will have many of them. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there won't be any um, generalization of a PC platform anytime soon. Um, so you really need the software design to be uh, modular in that regard that, you know, you do known set of porting efforts uh, to bring it up onto a new hardware. And I believe that they have reduced that time quite a bit by designing the house in, in the same way. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that's a strong point for it because um, Obviously, you scale the tooling across all of them, um, but then you know there's only a few bits of work done, uh, and you know the HAL porting is a limited set of things that you do, and the RTOS is on your uh, uh, on your you know custom design, and that's really powerful. Yes, definitely. So um, that's that's a. Uh... That's that's hardware. So our, our second section, unless you had any more comments on hardware, Cam. Uh, yeah, I think um, uh, I was also seeing uptick of um, software modules in Zephyr are mm -hmm. uh, becoming richer and richer. So that's also a very strong point for anybody building systems around Zephyr. They can have you know modules handy, ready, readily available for doing various aspects. Yeah, it's almost like a very extensive suite of middleware built in, you know, to do all types of encodings, transports, um, per, mm -hmm. just pretty much anything you can think of. Yeah. yeah. So part two is embedded Linux. And again, there's, there's lots happening in the embedded Linux world. It's something that we mm -hmm. need for pretty much any complex new new product we're building we use embedded linux yeah so what do you see there kim yeah i think there are a lot of things probably you know we'll limit to what we see and it may not be like everything in there you know so essentially um you know given that there are a lot of tooling uh, that we have done you know so far in many many uh, years uh, for embedded linux has been built around cross building so in cross building is when you build on your PC, but target is the produced code is run on a different um, uh, system, which could be the same architecture. It could be a different architecture, like you know you are on a uh, Intel machine and you are generating a code that then will run on an ARM machine, uh, and vice versa these days. So, um, so what I think is, you know, it's a uh, cross compiling is hard, and it has always been hard. And at every step, if you look into the embedded Linux development space, 
developers have tried to avoid it if they can. And I think that this will just become more and more um, uh, possible as we move into 2024 future and thereof. Specifically, given um, you know the languages that are being adopted in embedded Linux development, I'm not talking about kernel, but I'm talking about applications and other uh, aspects mm-hmm. of it. Uh, even kernel is adopting Rust now, and um, I don't know whether you followed, but there is a discussion about using C++ as well. Why not? So, um, so there is adoption of these modern languages, which basically makes um, cross compiling easy, right? So essentially what you will see is uh, it's transforming into like the way we tra- cross compile today to something different, mm-hmm. uh, which could be a combination of native or, you know, some sort of container technologies combined with it. But the experience seems more like a native development experience. Sure. Yeah, as systems get more complex, it's it's just becoming harder and harder to cross compile the entire system. And the dependencies, at least in Yocto, are very fine grained. So mm-hmm. if you change anything, suddenly you're rebuilding the whole system. Mm-hmm. So at some point, you know, it seems like we're going to have to adjust our approach a little bit. Uh, who knows what that might be? It might be more of a, a package based approach or. Mm-hmm. Uh, something something we've never seen yet. Who knows? It's it's a great opportunity, and hopefully something good will come up in that space. Mm-hmm. And like you said, with the with the modern languages, Go, Rust, and Zig, they're they're kind of moving the burden of cross compiling from the from the Yocto layer or the the Linux build layer to the actual the language tooling. So that that's been a really nice change. Yeah. So, yeah, I think, um, you know, on the tool side, because tools are important, and I think, you know, in better space, tooling moves very slowly, even slower than embedded Linux, um, because, um, you know, given the complexity and how um, uh, different systems are built, um, we are seeing a, a use of LLVM uh, adoptions in different aspects of um you, you know, um, tooling systems. And it's basically um, not for traditional cross compiler, sort of like static compiler. That is one part of it, which basically called Clang. Um, but um, there are more uses to, you know, the LLVM is a embedded, embeddable compiler library. And uh, as a result, there are a lot of tools that are now, you know, building around it. Um, BPF starts to use it. Mesa started to use it. Um, in so, so what does BPF do? Uh, so Berkeley packet filters are um, basically, you know, it's a particular syntax that you can write your rules. They get then interpreted and you can inject them. And So is uh, this kind of like IP tables? Yeah. Yeah, so you can do packet filtering. Right, it's for packet you know. filtering, but uh, your rules are more like a, a language, so to speak. And mm-hmm. uh, so there is sort of a VM that's running in the kernel space, which basically processes them 
and and so there is a, a little, little bit of more programmatic way of defining your rules and they run in the kernel context so you know they they're really uh, fast so to speak so mm -hmm. firewalling or you know, other kind of stuff you can do um, and similarly you know there are other um, other tools you know we'll put a link to other projects that are being built with LLVM. Uh, so there are many of them. Uh, some of the interesting bits we talked about here, perhaps I think we'll see more adoption into heterogeneous computer programming, more for LLVM. The fact that it can uh, cross compile easily, which means that you know it has this um, uh, table generators, which are basically very, very powerful way of retargeting compiler. So, um, you know, it, you can invoke two different backends, perhaps, you know, within the single run. And um, so it might get more adoption in those areas where, you know, you are using your code generation where some code should be generated for a particular processing unit, a GPU, it might be a DSP or a crypto engine or, you know, a, a specific implementation. And, um, uh, I think the more and more programming is moving that way. So you could generate native code for uh, running on your GPU or your DSPs or PRUs, that nature. So I think it might get a lot of um, development in that area in coming years, given you know the AI and other kind of things coming our way. Yeah, that is very interesting. If you could have one, one tool suite that would... Uh... You could feed a program into it and it would spit out a, a binary that would put parts of it on the GPU, parts of it on your CPU and and, mm -hmm. and so on. Yeah, that's that really seems like it'll be necessary to really leverage all these special purpose compute units. Yeah. And I think this goes back to, you know, when you mentioned earlier on that we are getting these systems where, you know, you have MCUs. Uh, and then you have a general purpose CPU, and then there are certain other uh, compute units connected to their, uh, the whole mm -hmm. design. And, um, you know, um, wouldn't it be nice if you could leverage all of that sure. uh, in your compute? So yeah. it really would basically go in that direction really well, I think, um, if it uh, gets th there. Mm hmm it seems like it almost has to, you know, as, as systems get more complex, occasionally we have to step back and say, how can we simplify this? Mm -hmm. And and that's really what we do in, in technology is, is we just continually step back. How can we simplify this and make it better? Yeah. Yeah. So. Well, the next section is application development. And we've already talked about a, a movement toward modern languages like Go, Rust, and Zig. And we've we've been using Go in a, in a number of projects very successfully. So we're big. Uh, at least I'm a big fan of that. It's it's really solved a whole host of problems. It's improved our software reliability mm -hmm. at least an order of magnitude, maybe more. Mm -hmm. And it also has reduced dependencies on the host OS. So we can pull in new versions of Go and deploy apps without worrying too much about the, the, the host operating system, what version it is and what libraries it has. 
it pretty much doesn't matter anymore. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, I was interestingly seeing, reviewing your PR for um, using Go 1.21 on Sumo, Yocto Sumo basically, which is, I don't know, God knows how old that is. Yeah, it's embarrassing I, that we still have a product running Sumo. <laughs> yeah, but the, so. the underlying fact is that, you know, Go doesn't have any dependency on iOS. Mm -hmm. So you can bring in the, the latest Go and Go runtime and have your Go application use all the latest bits from it. Um, and so it's like really separating you from that system, so to speak, really well. So in the application space, definitely a big advantage. Yeah, decoupling is, is very good whenever you can do it. And this is a, this is a very good example of decoupling your application from the, mm -hmm. from the operating system. Yeah, and I think with CC++, um, because your system uh, runtime is kind of tied in, you know, so your C++ standard runtime and others. So um, when you start, say you wanna use like latest compiler, you have to like really tailor your way in, you know, so you don't really conflict with the rest of the system. And, you know, um, I mean, if you can use static linking, okay, the discussion is over. But, um, you know, then how good it works, for example. Um, you know, do they uh, allow you to do static linking? Are the libraries good for that? Um, so I think those are kind of things that we really um, see, especially with this modern uh, programming paradigm following languages like either Go, Rust is in the same way, you know, so they, they have, uh, you know, subtle differences from Go, which doesn't have a managed, you know, memory management and, um, um, and runtime, but, you know, essentially the, the memory safety bits are kind of forced onto compile time. Um, so in an embedded space, that's quite lucrative uh, specifically, um, and but uh, some of the higher level, you know, ecosystemy concepts are similar to Go, where it has its own, you know, uh, system to manage modules called crates, um, and the compiler keeps updating um, every often, you know. So you are basically not tied to a particular compiler. Uh, you know, the Rust developers are always trying to use the latest version. It may be good or bad, but it kind of like keeps you nimble. Um, Zig is interesting. Zig is kind of, you know, uh, probably the least talked about of all these three languages, but, you know, it has big potential as well because of um, the simplicity that it embraces, uh, mm -hmm. like Go and uh, some of the features about like, you know, how you can do effective memory management. Um, by like say passing allocator to the functions um, instead of like calling malloc in the functions and then forgetting to do free. Um, so there are like interesting concepts uh, like fat pointers where, you know, you basically pass in um, the count along with the pointer. So you don't, you really don't run into buffer overflows and things like that. So very neat design. And they're coming up with like a lot of features around um, you know, distributing uh, modules. They already have a build system. In fact, 
you know, if nothing else, you could use Zig to cross compile your C, C++ code. You know. Yeah, I've heard of people using Zig to actually write tests for their C, C programs because it's just has built in testing and it's it's just nicer to work with. Mm -hmm. And like you said, Zig has a lot of nice features for really customizing performance. Mm -hmm. So I think in performance sensitive applications, you know, numerical processing games, different things, I think we're going to see Zig really take off. Yeah. And I think even like migrating from your existing C, C++ programs, which is majority of embedded space, you cannot do whole uh, migration in atomically. Mm -hmm. So I think Zig is well placed in that. that it can basically, you can write your new code in Zig and still use your C code or C++ code. Uh, in a unified project. And I think that's very strong. Um, you know, there is like effort like Carbon from Google, which is trying to do same, but kind of like, you know, modernizing C++. Um, but there is a, uh, a practical need for something like that. Right. right. So you, I mean, you don't always get an opportunity to write uh, uh, system from scratch you know those are like once in a lifetime things most of the time there always is legacy so i think zig is well set for that yes so another trend that, that everybody's talking about is ai and since we're focused somewhat on embedded development uh, we think ai running at the edge or on distributed embedded linux systems will be Mm -hmm. be a big thing. We A lot of these systems have very powerful processors that can easily run AI algorithms. Mm -hmm. It's very standard for these systems to have eMMC, which is typically four gigabytes minimum. Mm -hmm. So, so lots of, lots of storage compared to the past anyway. Yeah. Yeah. I think it would make sense because, you know, given that number, you know, number of these systems that you will have out there uh, will be easily outnumbering, you know, any number of servers you want to put into it, into your uh, cloud or what have you. Um, if you can qualify some of these, you know, at the edge, that really, really makes it a lot more powerful um, in processing information and, and doing real-time decision-making, for example, and Mm -hmm. uh, those are like really good areas where, you know, it can um, improve the adoption. Um, yeah, the, the easiest way to scale is to push processing out to the edge because you have so many nodes mm -hmm. and so much processing power. Not not necessarily that each one has a lot, but you have so many that the aggregate is is huge. And you can also limit the amount of data you need to send upstream to the cloud if you process more of it at the edge. And we're all yeah. we're all being buried with data, so we need better ways to yep. limit the amount of data we need to deal with or, or mm -hmm. process. One of the things I think will happen in IoT systems is history will become more and more important. Mm. So more, more classic applications, you're just looking at current state, making decisions. But I think the 
there's a lot of value in being able to look at history and make even better decisions. And having history at the edge is, is, um, is something we're looking at with simple IoT and, 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 and trying to push in that direction. Yeah, I think, you know, that in itself is a, is a case for AGI, if you will, you know, where if you have the history and like time series data, and then you, you can really do uh, smarter decisions right there rather than with the snapshots that you might have. Yeah. So as we, we talk about user interface technologies and applications at the edge, you know, typically we might have a, a, a device with a touch screen and this touch screen would display a user interface where people yeah. could interact with the system locally. In the past, these have used a number of technologies. We've, we've used uh, GDK. Um, we've also used QT or Qt. And, and those are more of the traditional native type developments. And as processors become more and more powerful, like starting with the IMX8 class machines, the using a web browser as your UI se seems like it's working really well. You know, the yeah. performance is there. We can run Chromium full screen in kiosk mode. We can display a very nice looking user interface using standard web technologies. Mm -hmm. And, you know, just, just the amount, just the e rich ecosystem around the web, even though it's not the fastest, it's not the best. It's uh, just, just the richness of the ecosystem makes it a more and more compelling solution. Yeah. For, for many applications where you don't need, you know, gaming type speed graphics. Right. Yeah. I think there definitely is an increase in this uh, web as, you know, web UI, so to speak. And I think it's only going to be more, you know, in, in, in this future. And there are interesting technologies even that are being done there, right? So if you look at Wasm, uh, you look at web GPU, you know, how the underlying hardware is like uh, exposed uh, in a portable way, um, that really makes it scalable. Like if you look from a product point of view, you know, you really want a unified UI uh, and unified experience thereof from, uh, from there. So it really is catering to that sort of uh, uh, market quite well. Um, native UIs work better and, you know, they will be performant um, as well. Um, but I think it's, again, like if, you know, those UIs are only needed for interaction and, you know, latency is not one of your problems, then obviously this really unfolds a rich set of um, features that you can really use. So, uh, and there is a lot of it, you know, out there. So. I'm just seeing that, you know, the, the, the web technologies are pushing in that direction. A lot of these will become a standard operating platform uh, as far as the UI is concerned. Yes. And, and one, one thing that's really nice with web technology is you can display the same user interface remotely mm. as you do on a, on a touchscreen on the device. So you can open up the same user interface in a web browser remotely or, mm -hmm. or see it local. And only having to write that user interface once 
yeah is a huge benefit yeah and these user interfaces are hard to write you know so they are not simple things to do where you can write one for your mobile another one for your uh, browser or desktop whatever you know interaction points you have um, so i think you scale a lot by doing it once and doing it well mm -hmm. so related to that is is the uh, pwa technology mm -hmm. and this is where you open up a web page and you you have an option in your browser to install this 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 application on your device, whether it be a desktop computer or a phone. And then from that point on, it just looks like a native application almost, but it's really a, a web application running in a browser, but it looks and feels very native. And there's been a lot of, lot of capabilities in the last year or so that have been added to PWAs. So they, they can do push notifications, they can access a lot of the hardware on your device and and various people in the industry are really predicting that 2024 will be the year when pwas really take off mm, yeah yeah i think a lot of applications are already you know electron based applications if you will mm -hmm. uh, each one of them bundle electron you know it's a specific version of electron in some cases so um and if I look at my system, you know, I have, I think, four or five different versions of Electron in there, sadly. But, um, but yeah, that just proves the point that a lot of these applications are already being uh, hosted on top of Electron runtime. Yeah. In Electron, the difference there is, is Electron includes the browser engine, mm -hmm. where the, the PWA, or I guess we should, we should define that, it's a progressive web app is what PWA stands for. Mm -hmm. But the PWA will just leverage the browser that's already installed on the device. So it's, it's a little bit lighter weight to install and yeah. kind of self-updates. So I think we have a um, few other topics to go through, probably in our um, second part of this episode, Cliff. What do you think? Yeah, I think this is good for part one. So maybe yeah, we'll please, pick, uh... pick up the rest on a on a future episode or, or maybe not. But anyway, let us know what you think. If you have any thoughts, please reach out to us in the many places we are available. Yep. And thanks for listening. Thank you. <laughs>